Welcome to our Pillars of the Reformed Faith series. This is our third video, and in this video I would like to discuss uh, the first pillar of the Reformed tradition, or rather begin considering the first pillar as it will take us probably two weeks. Uh, in our first video, I argued that uh, the Reformed position, or I stated that the Reformed position historically and confessionally presented is more than just Calvinism. But while it is more than just Calvinism, it does include Calvinism, and Calvinism obviously has to play a major part in any Reformed system of thought. After all, the question of how we're saved is essential. Uh, you can look at some of the other pillars, how we worship, how we view the church, how we view the end times. Uh, all of these will be pointless discussions if we don't have a clear view of the biblical teaching of salvation. And so we begin with this first pillar, Reformed Soteriology, that is Doctrine of Salvation, commonly referred to as Calvinism. Uh, Calvin referred to it as Augustinianism, off of the famous St. Augustine. Um, it can be summarized in a variety of ways. Uh, monergism is one word you may hear, and I hope to talk about that more in the next video. Uh, but I, I think one of the ways we, we can think of it the best is to think of it as a summary of salvation that emphasizes the sovereign grace of God over the salvation of sinners. The sovereign grace of God, that is God's part in the salvation of sinners. Um, and so to think about this, I think one of the best ways we can think about uh, this is to think about the order of salvation. How do events take place? What is the order in which salvation occurs? Uh, there are certain biblical words associated with salvation, with the gospel, uh, and uh, every, every Christian group or uh, branch of uh, Christendom has some concept of an order of salvation. Uh, the Catholics have their system, the Lutherans have theirs, uh, the two that are in some ways closest together are Arminianism and Calvinism. Um, they are not the same, uh, but they both seek to use, for the most part, fairly exclusively biblical words taken from, especially from the Pauline epistles in the New Testament, to talk about salvation. Uh, some of the other camps have words that uh, have, have been kind of inserted in or concepts based on tradition or things like that in church history. But Arminianism and Calvinism seek to stick to the same basic uh, ideas. So although they differ in how some of these things are ordered, both camps seek to uh, think through how we're saved starting with foreknowledge, uh, then uh, words like election, predestination uh, come into view, and then uh, calling, 
faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, uh, preservation or uh, perseverance, and glorification. The, the same basic words, um, but several of these are viewed distinctly. Uh, for example, foreknowledge is understood in the Arminian position as foresight. And I want to come back to that in a moment. Whereas in the Calvinist position, it's understood as foreloved. Uh, regeneration is going to be understood distinctly in those two systems as well, as well as the idea of perseverance or preservation. Uh, to what extent are believers preserved and what extent do they persevere? To what extent can they lose their salvation? Obviously, those types of things are going to differ between Calvinist and Arminian. Um, but overall, their systems are both seeking to address what the Bible teaches about man's salvation in relationship with God. I want to focus our attention on the Reformed view. That is the purpose of this series. Uh, but you can compare these two systems and Perhaps I'll try to insert a PDF on our sermon audio page under the documents uh, where you can look at these two systems side by side. Uh, Lorraine Boatner, a, a wonderful theologian of the last century, gives this concise statement to summarize the Reformed view of how salvation happens or of salvation. He says, in his book, Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, that the Reformed view or the Calvinist view holds that as a result of the fall into sin, all mankind in themselves are guilty, corrupted, hopelessly lost, that from this fallen mass, God sovereignly elects some to salvation through Christ while passing by others that Christ is sent to redeem his people by a, a purely substitutionary atonement, that the Holy Spirit efficaciously, that is successfully, applies this redemption to the elect, and that all the elect are infallibly brought to salvation. End quote. I think that's a, a marvelous summary. I know there's a lot in there. Um, but that's the basic concept of the Reformed view of salvation, that we are hopelessly lost, corrupted, guilty. And the end of the day, salvation is therefore completely a sovereign act of God. And that's the first of four questions that I think are important for us to consider when we think about what is the Reformed doctrine of salvation? The first question out of four is, who is sovereign in our salvation? The Reformed view is that God is completely sovereign. Now, the Arminian view, conservative Arminians, Bible-believing Arminians, are going to also say God is uh, in some way uh, sovereign, um, but uh, sovereign over providence in general, not over my uh, specific um, salvation. 
And this comes down to a question of uh, uh, man's responsibility and man's ability versus man's inability and, uh, and God's sovereign election. So if we think about that for a moment, um, in one camp you have a position saying that God has chosen to stand back when it comes to your salvation, my salvation, that the gospel offers put out there, that you are responsible to receive it and embrace it, and that you are able to choose to do that. Although you are corrupted by sin, that corruption doesn't go so deep uh, as to affect your free will. You can freely choose, uh, and you may freely choose, the gospel. In such a viewpoint, what does uh, the Arminian position then do with the New Testament words election, predestination, and foreknowledge? Well, it's all about how you understand foreknowledge and then uh, how you define election and predestination to fit that. So the Arminian camp uh, presents foreknowledge as uh, foresight. Those he foreknew means those that God foresaw. And what is it that they that God saw about those um, whom he elected? Uh, well, he foresaw that they were going to choose him, that they were going to choose to believe. And therefore, since looking ahead into the future, God saw that I was going to choose him. He, in the past, chose me. It's a, a bit of a vicious circle in terms of what is the cause. And that really is the, the big challenge I'd like to bring uh, to you uh, today is what is the cause of God choosing you? We, we have to face the fact that the New Testament is clear that God chose his elect in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. But what do we mean by that? And the big question there is, um, what is the cause of God choosing you? If it's him looking into the future, seeing that you are going to believe, that you are going to have faith, and therefore choosing you, the cause of your election is something in yourself. The Reformed position approaches this differently. The Reformed position sees that throughout the scriptures, the idea of knowledge often is tied to the idea of knowledge in a relationship, especially focusing on love. And so for known is to be for loved. And in this system, we answer the question, uh, what is the cause of my election? The answer is, he loved us. Nothing to do with what's in me. God says this himself, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And he makes it very clear, was it because Jacob was particularly a nice fellow? Just read Genesis. He wasn't. Well, neither am I. It's not because he foresaw something in me that he chose to set his affections upon me. No, his love is the starting point for my election. And it is because he loved me and elected me that in time and space, I believe he worked that, he gave me that gift of faith. 
And so the question of who is sovereign in salvation, well, if it's my choice based on my free will and God only elects me because he sees my faith, then in one sense, I am the sovereign deciding factor in my own salvation. But if God foreloved the elect before the foundation of the world and chose us in Christ, not because of something in us, not because of foreseen faith, but he chose us in Christ out of love, predestining us to adoption as sons, well then, all the glory and all this sovereignty rests on God. It is all of grace, not all of grace after God sees that I will believe. Uh, a second question I think is very important is a question then of um, a, a question as to uh, how far does sin permeate? Because this is the big challenge of the question whether or not my free will is able to choose to have faith in God. And so the question is, does, does our sin only handicap us? Does it set us out of fellowship with God while still leaving us able to crawl back and reclaim that relationship ourselves uh, by his mercy? Or uh, does it make us not only guilty, but guilty and unable to seek God, unable to desire God. Well, Scripture again and again uh, shows the extreme depths of sin's control over our hearts, our minds, and our wills. Our hearts, the seat of our affections, yes, and even our love. Our minds, the seat of our intellect and knowledge. And our will, which choosing from our affections, our heart, and our intellect, our mind, uh, chooses what we desire the most. But scripture presents even that will as being corrupted by sin. Genesis 6 verse 5, God declares that then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, we might say, yeah, but that was before the flood, and, and we know that God destroyed mankind because of that, and, and so it's different after the flood. But hear what God says after the flood. In Genesis 8, no sooner has Noah come off the ark, he's made an atoning sacrifice with innocent blood, uh, offered it up to the Lord, and God is making a covenant with Noah and creation, which includes all humanity, from that point on. And what is the center point of that covenant? God declares, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God doesn't say, well, now that I've cleansed the earth with this flood and this judgment, I won't curse the ground again because man has learned his lesson. Man will now be able to choose and will choose the good thing. He says, no, their hearts 
are evil from their youth. He's talking right there about the only eight people on planet Earth and their offspring, Noah, his wife, and uh, children, and in-laws. And so God makes it clear right there that our hearts are very wicked and only, only evil continually. Romans 3 summarizes this, our ability, uh, by quoting extensively from the Psalms and the prophets, the Holy Spirit through Paul declares, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And it goes on and on. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But notice there that there's none who understands. That's the mind. That's the intellect. There's none who seeks after God. That's the will. And God tells us, none chooses to seek me. Sin permeates all the way down to... Uh, to our uh, mind, our, our, bo our heart, and our, our will in such a way that the only way it can best be described is death. And that's what we find in Genesis 2, in the garden. God, before the fall, declares in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, that the very day that you eat of the tree, that is the very day you rebel against me in sin, you shall surely die. Now, if you read Genesis 3, you know that while death immediately came into the world, Adam and Eve did not physically die that day. So what is God talking about? He's talking about their spiritual death. Physical death did enter the world that day. But immediately that day, they spiritually died. They died to the things of God. This death affects our ability to choose. First uh, Corinthians four, uh, uh, sorry, First Corinthians two, verse fourteen declares: the natural does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But with Adam, we fell into spiritual death in the garden. How can we know? How can we discern? Romans 8, 7 through 8, and I'm reading here from the New American Standard Bible, that declares, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostility toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice that not even able to do so, not able to choose to do so. Hence, Jesus telling Nicodemus that we must be born again, born of the Spirit, to even see, let alone desire, choose the kingdom of God. Read John 3, uh, and especially verses 5 through 7. And that'll be an important text I want to come back to next week as we ask two more questions as we consider the Reformed view of salvation. Those other questions I want to discuss are, what is regeneration? And 
Does God predestine all humans or only some? I suppose we can throw in there, or none. But since the New Testament says he predestines, does he predestine some or all humans? But for now, I want to stop with that thought first, that God sovereignly is in control of our salvation from the very beginning. The cause of my election is not for anything good in me. He saw me in my lost estate and uh, chose anyway to predestine this faithless fallen man. No, he sovereignly chose out of love and out of nothing in me. And secondly, that the scripture does abundantly show that we are dead. Our corruption gets all the way to our wills, which is going to affect our ability to be the one to choose God first. And that means the question of regeneration is so important, which I hope to look at, Lord willing, in the next video. In the meantime, uh, with each pillar, I want to give you at least two book recommendations that are very helpful. And I have two for Calvinism, uh, and I decided I would split them up and share one of them with you today. And that book is just one of the most encouraging books I've read. I love this book. It's Charles Spurgeon, All of Grace. Now, this book is not a systematically outlined order of salvation. It's it's Spurgeon reflecting on how we're saved in a very uh, beautiful and, and flowing way. Um, I've read this in high school. I remember thinking, oh, yeah, okay. I pulled this out in 2020, and I found it so comforting. I've read it four times since then. It is a rich volume uh, presenting the sovereign work of God that even our having faith, is his sovereign gift. That, uh, that we have no ability to come to him, therefore our salvation is all of grace. I highly recommend this book. And in fact, this particular copy is a, a nice little copy put out by Chapel Library. And you can actually go on Chapel Library, um, chapellibrary.org, uh, and you can get this book for free. So I encourage you to do that and richly enjoy the blessings of this. There's also a wonderful, uh, beautifully read audio version of this book that you can get, I, I think, through Audible, probably. Well, I hope you find this helpful, and we'll come back in the next video to, to consider ourselves in our lost estate, dead in sin. What next? God bless.